Blog Talk Radio. Rifleman Radio Show on Appleseed Radio. The Rifleman Radio Show is sponsored by the Appleseed Project, which is directly uh, sponsored by the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. The War- Revolutionary War Veterans Association is dedicated uh, to teaching the absolute best uh, rifle marksmanship course available and at the same time <clears throat> to honoring the men and women who stood together on Lexington Green at the North Bridge and Concord and along Battle Road back to Boston. By remembering them, we can honor them. Uh, too many times today, it seems that life is traveling at such a fast speed, <clears throat> people don't slow down enough to remember the reasons that we have this nation, that we have these freedoms, these liberties, uh, that everything we have uh, in this nation, we can directly trace back to those men and women on that day, April 19, 1775. <clears throat> well, I'd like to thank everybody for listening this evening. Uh, we've got a lot of great uh, information coming your way, and I'll just get that started off right off the bat with the uh, upcoming events. We'll start off with the weekend of February 27th and 28th, this coming weekend. And we'll get started in Albion, New York, followed by Cedar City, Utah, Chaplin, Connecticut, Davila, Texas, where right now we're in uh, oh, about six inches of snow. Uh, yesterday uh, I was in my T-shirt, and today 
there's six inches of snow. That's Texas weather for you. Infield, New Hampshire, Fountain, Colorado, and Ramsar, North Carolina. That takes us to the first week in March. That's March 6th and 7th. And that gets started in Fresno, California, followed by Gaston, South Carolina, Hawkinsville, Georgia, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Pittsburgh, Kansas, Red Bluff, California, Tocoa, Georgia, Waterman, Illinois. That takes us to the March 13th, 14th weekend, which gets started in Birmingham, Alabama, followed by Farmington, New Mexico, Henderson, Minnesota, Racine, Wisconsin, Williamston, Michigan, Augusta, Georgia. We'll start the March 20th, 21st weekend, followed by Canton, Mississippi, Colebrook, Connecticut, Corpus Christi, Texas, Davila, Texas, Escondido, California, Lancaster, Ohio, Lobelville, Tennessee, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Osage Beach, Missouri, Peru, California, Sacramento, California, Stinson, West Virginia, and Yanceyville, North Carolina. That takes us to the March 27th, 28th weekend, which begins at the indoor range at Amarillo, followed by Buckeye, Arizona, Evansville, Indiana, Miamisburg, Ohio, Mayaca City, Florida, and Ramsar, North Carolina. All right, that takes us a full month ahead. Uh, remember that if you want to attend one of these events, if you want to attend an Appleseed event, the best thing you can do is go to appleseedinfo.org, appleseedinfo.org. That's the homepage. And up in the top left-hand corner, you'll see a tab that says uh, Appleseed. Click on that. You'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, click on Schedule. That will take you to the page that I'm looking at. Now, on this page, it will have the events listed by the month and uh, then by the, the date, by the weekends in that month, and then the cities. So you'll look at an event that uh, you want to attend. <clears throat> when you look at that event, there will be two hot links to the right of it. One says information. The information link will take you to the information for that specific event, where it's located, uh, any rules or regulations for that event, uh, the directions, the contact info, uh, and a little bit about the range. The next link says register. Now, that's the important link there, too, because once you've decided that you want to attend an event, even if it's uh, in uh, December of 2010, the best thing you can do is right now, today, click on that register event. That will take you to the third-party software we use, the Eventbrite page, and it will let you register then and there for an event. And the reason we'd like you to do this is, uh, is several reasons, actually. The first reason being we want to make sure that you do get a slot on the line. The best way to do that is get one now, pre-register for the event, and uh, you will know that you have a place on the line. Then go and get your buddy and get him to pre-register too for the event so that both of you can have a place side-by-side side on the line. Now, once you've pre-registered, 
then we know how many people are coming to the event according to how many have pre-registered. That lets us know uh, how many instructors need to be scheduled for the event because uh, we have events going on, uh, hundreds and hundreds of events throughout the, the year, sometimes hundreds in a month. <clears throat> and that means uh, many hundreds of plane tickets and hotels and rental cars and, and porta-potties and boxes of supplies that need to be sent. And we can get a better picture of what we need to do by counting the pre-registered folks. So you want to make sure you have a place on the line, you pre-register. And that will also allow us to make sure that we get the correct amount of instructors and supplies to the event. So we both win when you pre-register. Once again, when, you were, when you're ready to select an event, you go to appleseedinfo.org. That's the home page. On the top left-hand corner, you'll see uh, the tabs there. It will say Appleseed. Put the cursor on that, you'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, you click on Schedule, and that will take you to the page that I'm looking at. Now, don't uh, forget that there's plenty of other information on the home page, and we're working on the home page now to get it to be uh, a more user-friendly home page and for it to have more information uh, on it that is usable for you. But uh, when you look at the Appleseed, uh, tab. You'll get the schedule there. You'll get comments. You have why April 19th. You'll have locations. You have facts, benefactors, how to be a host, uh, what women are saying about the Appleseed program. Right next to it is boot camps. If you click on that, you'll get the general information. You'll get a schedule of the boot camps, what to bring to a boot camp. Uh, you can register on, the, on that link for boot camps. Uh, you'll get the, there's a fact uh, page for it, <clears throat> how to prepare. Uh, you have another one that uh, allows you to, another tab that says register now. That's so that you can register right now online, or it will take you to a place where you can uh, download the uh, the mail-in document to register. Uh, there's a, another tab that, uh, that talks about the instructors in Appleseed. There's another tab that says Donations. That talks about our matching donations program. There's the RWVA Links program, which goes to the RWVA store. That's right, we have a store where we sell uh, RWVA gear. That uh, Also in that link is the RWVA forum. Now, the forum is uh, where we get together to discuss our work, discuss the mission of the Appleseed program. It's not really a social place, uh, we get on, we get our assignments, we post the after-action reports, uh, we read uh, what's going on in other areas of the nation, etc. Uh, but there's a lot of good information there. Don't forget that RWVA also has a blog. That's at RWVA, uh, that's at appleseedinfo.org backslash blog. And uh, you'll get a lot of inf information and interesting articles there on the blog from Fred, myself, Nickel, Junior Birdman, uh, Indiana James, Jim Jones, uh, uh, from a lot of folks there that uh, are posted on the blog. If you have something you want to put on the blog, uh, you can, you're welcome to send it to me. Just PM me on the uh, on the forum, PM Scout, and uh, send me what you'd like to uh, to get on there, and we'll see about getting it on there. Uh, you can also use the comments uh, tab 
to uh, post any thoughts or comments you have after any of the articles. The next tab is the news tab, and that tells you about the, some of the latest news that we have. And then right under that is news articles. That's uh, some of the latest stuff that folks are saying about us. And then there's the Appleseed newsletters. And then the last tab, of course, is for uh, folks that want to email the program. So uh, there's also plenty of uh, other additional information here. Uh, on the home page uh, so don't forget that we have the home page there and uh, and be looking in the next few weeks for the uh, for the home page to kind of uh, uh, to kind of get a facelift <clears throat> all right I told you we have a uh, <clears throat> we have a great show this evening we have uh, uh, Jack from the Survival uh, Podcast. He's going to be our guest tonight. We'll be speaking with him about uh, about the things a rifleman needs to do, needs to think about, because not only is it your duty to, uh, to become a rifleman, to live the life of a rifleman, which means become the master of your rifle, understanding about our history and being able to tell the story, and then doing the seventh step, which is passing that information on uh, as fast as you can to as many folks as you can in order to fulfill your duties, your sacred obligations to the nation uh, in your Paul Revere mode uh, of waking people up and making them understand that there's more to, there's more to being an American than just a little slop that's filled out uh, where it says birth location. There's more to it than that. There's more responsibilities. There's more duties. One of the other duties is is to make sure that you are taking care of yourself, your family, your community, your state, and your nation. Now, it's going to be hard for you to do that if you are not prepared uh, for many of the eventualities that face us these days. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and uh, and about the things that the rifleman can be doing uh, to prepare for any eventuality. So without further ado, I'm going to bring, uh, bring Mr. Spurko on the show. Jack, welcome to the show. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here tonight. Well, we sure appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule. I know it's busy because uh, because I get uh, the updates from your show, and I get one uh, uh, I get them all the time, which means uh, you've got to be doing the research all the time. And uh, so I know you're very busy. So thanks a lot. Yeah, I try to do a show a day, and even when I go on vacation, I try to do two a day for a while, so nobody goes without one uh, Monday through Friday. Anyway, I do take the weekends off. Uh, but that, that that old joke about one a one legged man in a butt kicking contest that's me on a usual basis <laughs> and uh and uh, the uh, the motto for the survival podcast is helping you live the life you want if times get tough or even if they don't, which I think is one of the most important parts uh of this discussion is that you don't have to be in a in a mindset of i've got to get ready. Uh, for the next Rita or Katrina, or I've got to get ready for the uh, financial uh, decline, uh, etc. Uh, the information, the information that you're putting out on your site, 
is good whether there is a disaster or any kind of uh, event or not. Correct. And as I was, you know, putting the whole thing together about a year and a half ago as I as I launched it and started doing it, what I did is I looked out at the preparedness industry as a whole and I looked at these cycles and these things that ebbed and flowed. Uh, Hurricane Katrina is a good example. Y2K's non-event was a good example. Uh, the recent swine flu that wasn't uh, is a good example. And what I noticed is that people kind of would ramp up and then, you know, what we'd call back in the military, fall out. And it's because people do things consistently that benefit them now. So what I thought I needed to do to make people take preparedness seriously and stick with it and make it part of a lifestyle was put it together in a way where they could see the immediate benefit even when nothing went wrong, and that's kind of how that whole philosophy came to be. Right, and in a uh, in the theory of this, uh, of uh, I don't want to say, quote, survival uh, mindset, but that's really what it is, and that's really how you how a person should be thinking. Now, I don't mean every day, uh, uh, you know, thinking about the the Red Dawn type scenario or something. And uh, uh, but what I mean is, <clears throat> it's just what you're saying is that you, if you live a life uh, with uh, where you're already planning out and considering things that I'm going to do these this X Y and Z uh, anyway as part of my lifestyle. And if I can make sure that X, Y, and Z are also beneficial to me uh, in the event of some type of, uh, of disaster or any type of uh, occurrence, then that's what I should be doing. Correct. I mean, we can take a look at something as simple as food storage because that's something that a lot of people that are of a preparedness mindset or a self-reliance mindset do. And we can say that that's uh, great if we have a lot of food stored up if something goes wrong. Well, the other side of that is if we practice eat what you store, store what you eat, we focus on uh, having additional food in the house that we're going to buy anyway. Well, now we have a convenience aspect. It's like having a convenience store in your own house. You also have the opportunity to not purchase items when a price spikes or to purchase extra items when the price goes down. Uh, but if something go goes wrong, you do have that additional insurance. And we think about, I mean, most people have car insurance. So if you get in a car wreck, you can get your car fixed. Most people have health insurance, so if you get sick, you can go to the doctor. Most people have fire insurance, so if your house burns down, you can have your house rebuilt. And most people have life insurance, so if you die, the people you're supposed to take care of still have something to take care of them. And, and those all make sense, and nobody walks around thinking all the time that my house is going to burn down and I'm going to die, uh, and somebody's going to uh, make me sick because that would be a pretty depressing life. But we have these insurances. Yet the most fundamental thing that we need on a daily basis is food, and very few people have what I call food insurance. Right, and so if you're going to set up a, uh, if you're going to set up or start, I don't want to say set up, I want to say start living this kind of lifestyle. Uh, what would be your recommendations on how to start that with the with the food? Well, the food is is really easy because the first step costs like no money except maybe a, a sheet of paper, and that is for like the first three weeks, just run a log of what you eat every day. And I, don't think, I think most people eat unconsciously, so you probably lose a pound or two if you do this as a bonus. But um, just pay attention to what you eat, write down the things that you eat. Because what happens is when people go out and they say, okay, I'm going to get uh, some food storage going on, and they go out and they buy stuff just because it's storable that they don't really want to eat, like spam and beans. Well, if you like spam and beans, great, but how much of that are you eating on a daily basis? So the first step is really to just make a log over two or three weeks of the foods that you're eating. And then look on that list and say, okay, now I know I eat these foods because here they are. They're written down, and, and we like these foods. And of, of those, the ones that are storable, start your storage with those items. That's such a simple step. 
And long term, you are going to look at things that are you know better long term storables like pastas and dried beans and, and things like that, and even commercial storables. But the average family can have a 60-day supply of food on hand quite easily without really buying a whole lot of things that uh, they wouldn't use anyway. So if we right. do that, we can buy smart. So that's kind of a first step with that. But the lifestyle as a whole is, is much broader than that. They were kind of drilling down into one aspect there. Right, and I, uh, I have a seller. And uh, so what I've done is, is kind of the same thing. And uh, I use the uh, – when I buy groceries – uh, I'll buy the, the immediately the perishable and consumables that I'm going to use immediately. But then I also buy uh, the canned goods, the uh, the dry goods, etc. But those don't go up on the shelf here. Those go down to the cellar, and then I take the top uh, stack off of the ones that I have in storage. So that I'm constantly uh, using up uh, what I've bought. Rather than going down there in uh, a year and finding it uh, eaten through with uh, with bugs or rotted. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's the big thing is to make sure that you're not just doing the eat what you store, store what you eat thing, but you're actually making sure you're eating what you store because even long-term storables have a shelf life and they have a propensity to be damaged or attacked by rodents. I, I know a lot of people are big into things like pastas because. Let's face it, America, Americans, we kind of enjoy pasta. It's an it's a easy thing to get kids to eat and all. But um, if you have any rodent problem whatsoever, and you probably do even if you think you don't, uh, and you give it any length of time whatsoever, um, sooner or later rodents will find pastas and, and get into them. So you need some level of additional protection. So we generally tell people to take things like that and store them in uh, either five-gallon buckets or something even stronger than that. Uh, I've actually done storage by making up multiple packages and then actually using uh, galvanized trash cans as a, uh, a protection method, which sounds a little bit crazy, but it's a very low-cost, large, you know, rodent-proof uh, container. Yeah, I got uh, – I, I, when they were selling for a while, they were filling these dog food in this, uh, like, five-gallon square containers. And, yeah. Uh, you can actually pop open part of the top and close it back, lock it back. So that's what I always bought my dog food in. It wasn't uh, really any more expensive. And then, of course, I use all those containers to store the package, already packaged stuff. And and if I started off, of course, with my my survival skills I learned in college, which was ramen. And uh, you know, you can buy uh, enough ramen for your fam for a family of of ten for sixty days for about five bucks. So uh, that's always a good. Uh, I'm exaggerating, but that's always a good choice there. Now. One of the reasons that that whenever he whenever Mr. Spirko is talking to you about the the food uh, is because I don't think that a lot of people understand the fact that uh, in any given city uh, for any given uh, there's only uh, at the most three days supply of food in any store. So the minute that that the incoming food stops, there's only three days of food left in that store, and you better you better go on the first day or all you're going to get is like dog food and uh, uh, and other stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at something as simple as these little snow events that we've had this year, uh, shelves have been absolutely emptied. We had about a week and a half ago now, I guess, 11 inches of snow in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is insane. I mean, it just that just doesn't happen. Um, I went to Kroger, not because I needed anything, because I wanted to see what people were doing. 
the bread was stripped from the shelves. The milk was stripped from the aisles. That's the first thing that people go for. I've I've never really understood that because bread milk are good stuff, but there's much more things that I enjoy more at the grocery store. And then you start to see everything else get wiped out. And then there was a line of cars uh, loading up the little bags of firewood uh, just because a snowstorm was coming. And we know that a snowstorm in Texas is something that's a maximum two-day event, yet everybody freaked out here. So if you live in Texas, that's one thing. But if you live, let's say, Washington, D.C. this year, um, they've had some real problems up there. And these are just everyday events that occur uh, that if you don't have at least a little bit of uh, sustainability on your side, uh, you're not going to die or anything. But let's face it, it's not very convenient and it's uncomfortable. And if the power goes out and you don't have any alternative source of heat, you actually do have a risk, especially with young children or elderly, uh, you know, elderly folks, or if you have elderly uh, in-laws living with you, elderly parents living with you. We have to think about these things. In the South in the summertime, we need to think about backup power, not so much because people get cold, but the heat. And the same thing with elderly and young children. A good friend of mine down near Houston, uh, when Rita came through, they didn't really have any major damage, but they were without power for a week. Well, he had a newborn baby. And you have to think about these things because by the time you need them, it's too late. Going out and buying a generator right after Hurricane Rita just wasn't an option. A couple days before, it really wasn't an option. So fortunately, this gentleman had forethought. So that's the big thing is to have forethought. And it's much broader, again, than, than food, but... Even, you know, your show is usually about uh, rifle craft, and we'll definitely talk about that tonight. But what I tell people is that are really focused on the gun aspect of survivalism is how many altercations or physical fights have you been in your life of any kind, shape, or form? And it's generally a relatively small number. And then my next question is how many times have you needed to consume food in your life? And that's generally a pretty big number, at least three times a day. Yeah. So it's a good place to start because it's the most fundamental need that you have. Whenever anybody starts to have financial difficulties or t- trouble at work or they need a raise, there's an old cliche that we always say, I've got to put a roof over our heads and food on the table. And that's because we fundamentally know as human beings the two things that we most need in the world are shelter and food. And without those, we can't go very far. Right. And, you know, some folks take this uh... – take this really seriously, you know, the Mormon Church uh, has a program. They ask all their members to uh, to have a year's supply of food uh, put up. You know, I actually really admire that. Uh, I'm, I'm not a Mormon, uh, and I don't plan on converting anytime soon, <laughs> but, uh, but I do really admire that, and I look at that. If you want to run a church, what a great way to run a church, because... One of the fundamentals of most religions is being able to give to and support other people. Well, you know, if you let's say you lose a job, well, you, you, you know, part of your job then is to find a new job, obviously. But that's actually a time of your life when you could be out helping other people. But generally, when people lose a job, they don't take advantage of that additional time to go out and help anybody because they're so focused internally on I got to put a roof over our head and food on the table. Well, if the food on the table is taken care of for a year when you lose a job the job loss becomes an opportunity instead of a burden. So if it's for running a church, well, that means that your church members are always able to help. If it's just for running your household, that means your household's always stable. Right, and, you know, I happen to have uh, some neighbors. I'm not a Mormon either, but I have some neighbors that uh, are Mormons, and uh, they, of course, have they've got uh, in their barns, they have uh, huge uh, stacks of uh, food. And then speaking with them, they said that uh, that the 
the church has usually will run a canning facility and that they, depending on the location and stuff, that they will usually uh, let you go and can your stuff, uh, depending on, you'd ha- you'll have to talk about it, but depending on the location and their, their feelings about that and stuff, but they'll usually let you go and can the stuff just for the cost of the materials. Absolutely, and they'll also sell you uh, pre-stored food, um, even if you're not a member, uh, for basically their cost, because their belief is that it's not just that their members should be uh, prepared, but they need to spread that message of preparedness and self-sufficiency uh, outside their community. And um, I've, I've known quite a few Mormon families. And it, they're some of the nicest, most outgoing, accepting people I've ever met. And I think that sharing philosophy is a big part of that personality that comes through from them. Right. And, you know, whenever there were the two events, and they were pretty much – they were, they were a lot the same and a lot in contrast was Rita and Katrina. And, uh, you know, I that changed, when that went down, that changed my uh, my thought process. It's actually one of the things that started uh, moving me toward the Appleseed program. And uh, what I saw was, you know, people have a uh, a belief, I think, that society... And the rules, the uh, their, uh, the fabric of society is is held in a uh, in a molecular skeleton in the shape of a uh, in the the diamond carbon uh, formation, but it's really more in the uh, uh, the graphite uh, formation. Yeah. You know, the the fabric of society is really very very fragile. Uh, you know, if uh, when something happens, even something like Rita and Katrina. Now, when Rita hit Houston, uh, it was a non-event. I mean, it, it, there was nothing that happened. And yet, the people in Houston, uh, they showed that they couldn't get their act together. Uh, they couldn't even get out of the city, right? There they were, were people that died on the there. highway because of the heat and running out of gas. Right. They couldn't even. They couldn't even get out of the city. Correct. And then uh, it happened again later. Once again, they said, okay, we got it all fixed this time. Well, it happened again, and they still couldn't get out of the city. Now, I'm, uh, I'm about two and a half hours from Houston, but still right at one tank of gas. I know that the, you're supposed to stay uh, two tanks of gas away from the major cities if you can. It's kind of hard, but uh, the point of, the, of, my, of me saying this is that even though nobody could get out of Houston, I live out in the middle of nowhere on a rural farm road. My road was still crowded, and that's with nobody getting out of Houston. Now, what if all those millions of people would have gotten out? And if they would have, who would who would be there to take care of them, to, to, help, their, to help solve their problems? Who would be there to take care of, uh, of my family if something happened? You know, uh, you're the, keying in on one of the big things that people miss with all these disasters. And that's that all of these major disasters that we've ever dealt with up to now have always been in a relatively small location. Houston, uh, Ike when it hit Galveston, uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, it was you know was much bigger than the media told us. By the way, there were a lot of suffering people in uh, Mississippi and the, the Florida Panhandle and, uh, that, that we kind of ignored because it didn't make the evening news. But it was still a relatively small area. And because of that, we have these safe staging areas where people can come in in the aftermath and help. 
if we ever deal with a major catastrophe, a nationwide or global catastrophe, it, the, the consequences, even if the event, its impact is not as acute uh, to the individual, are far more grievous because then there's no one to come help. And if you look around the world, if you look at the recent Haitian earthquake, if you look at the earthquake in China a few years ago, the tsunami in Indonesia, um, in all these instances, the, the country that jumps into the fray and does the most, the fastest, is the United States. And what that makes me wonder is if something happens here, we're not ready to take care of ourselves. Who's coming to help us? And That's I'm sure right. people will eventually, but they're not going to come with the level of responsiveness that we generally do because yeah, they don't because have the means don't... and the ability to do it, even if they want right. to. That's it. They don't. They're not geared up for it. We are. Correct. But if something happens to us, we're not going to be able to to take care of ourselves. And that's one of the things that got me thinking. I said, you know what? If and and this was like I said, this was a non-event, and so nobody got out of town. What if they? What if one day they figured out and they got their act together and they figured out how to get out of town? There was going to be a hundred times more people. Uh, coming out of there than what was coming out and what how was i going to deal with that how would how would it not just help myself but how would i be able to help those folks and uh correct you can only help so many i mean that's the thing we we all need to think about like can we help other people how we can we we can build community around ourselves but there's a limit to how much we can do and that's why we need to spread the message of preparedness. And we also need to be prepared to deal with the consequences of these things because the person that would never harm you when, when their child is going to starve, they will. That's and, it. And our government did studies back during the big Cold War threat of how long would a society last once everything broke down and every scenario that they ran never made it past 48 hours. Right, because Ever. people are in the mindset, they say, uh, look, I, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get what I need to survive, even if it means uh, doing harm to you or your family to get what I need. I'll take what I need, uh, and that's the mindset that folks get in. You know, at the time, uh, I was just collecting uh, ancient firearms, and that was my whole deal. I, I used to buy and sell uh, ancient-type uh, firearms, and I... I still have quite a few, but uh, you know, stuff. All the stuff leading up to like World War One and stuff like that. And I started thinking about that, and I said, you know, that's really nice that I have all those. They're very pretty to look at. Uh, and like I said, I still kept a couple just so I can get them out and uh, work the action and look at them and admire them. But they're not going to do me any good if if a, if a situation comes down to where. Uh, I need uh, I need to use a firearm, or I need to get ammunition for a firearm, etc. So uh, I immediately that same week, I immediately started uh, selling them, and I sold everything I had, and just started buying back in uh, in the types of firearms and the calibers that uh, that were the most common. Makes sense. I mean, I think that the one thing that I, I want to maybe talk about tonight, real quick, with the the common caliber thing, is I think there's a lot of people out there that are of the opinion that what I'm going to do is everything I'm going to buy is going to be nine millimeter, forty five ACP, two two three, three oh eight, or seven point six two by uh, thirty nine or twelve gauge. And if I do that, and we have a, a, a point where you know it hits the fan, um, those are going to be the most available ammunition. 
I, I actually find that to be somewhat of a myth, not completely a myth, but somewhat of a myth. I want you to think back a year ago when we had the big ammunition shortage when everybody freaked out because Barack Obama got elected. Uh, if I wanted to go down to the store here at Academy or, or any of these other sporting goods stores in the area and buy 270 Winchester, 300 Winchester, Magnum, uh, 3030, or anything like that, I could get all of it I wanted. If I wanted a box of 308 uh, or a box of 223, I either had to pay three times what the going rate had been or I couldn't find it at all. Because when more people have a caliber, it's what they go after first and pull off of the market, off of the market first. But long term, I think we need to think about just like we store food, you better store ammunition, you better learn how to reload, you better store components, and you better learn the craft of amu- ammunition manufacturing. Um, and, and you better store the components. That's a big thing because I'm a reloader, so I thought when you know it was hard to get 45, no problem. Uh, but as I started to realize I didn't have that many large pistol primers, well, those became as hard to find as uh, 45 or 40 Smith or uh, uh, 9 millimeter. That's right. You're not. But, reloading, but I want people to not do not lull yourself into a false sense of security that just because you have what's, what's called a common caliber that ammunition is likely to be available if we have a real problem. The reality is, very quickly, just like food, all of it will go. And it will become more valuable than gold. Right. I just did did simple things, uh, just kind of like what you're talking about. I said, uh, you know, uh, I've I've done a lot of uh, restoration, a lot of uh, uh, remodeling, et cetera, and, and buying houses and going through them and stuff like that and old vehicles and uh, I just I, I thought back to what were the what were the calibers that I always found in there and it was uh, 22 20 gauge 12 gauge and 30 30 and uh, so I started off with that but I also have uh, like on my my uh, the shotguns I have a 12 gauge I have, actually I have several in that uh, I bought the uh the Mossberg 835, and right just done. because uh, that has that has the ability to fire any 12 gauge cartridge you find, All that from three from the three and a half inch to the uh, uh, you know to the shorter ones. That, uh, quarter, yeah. And I want to be clear, I'm not putting down any of the rounds that I mentioned. What I'm saying is, when you're when you're in need of a firearm, buy the 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 caliber, the round, the gun that fits the need that you have most without really ruling something out because it's not quote-unquote a common caliber, which means if it is a common caliber and that's what works best, buy that too, if that makes sense. I just I hate to see people rule things out because, let's be honest, if you live in Wyoming and you hunt pronghorn, uh, then a 270 Winchester is a great round. It really is. If you live in the Pennsylvania, you know, northeastern deer woods that I grew up hunting in, um, you can use it. There's nothing wrong with it, but... Uh, you're not really going to push that round to its potential because uh, you're not going to get a shot on a deer or any medium-sized game in, in those woods at, you know, three, 400 yards. It's just not done because uh, there's too much cover there. So there's, there's, there's a, a, a principle of buying the right tool for the job. If I need to nail uh, uh, big spikes, I'm going to buy a sledgehammer. If I need to nail roofing nails, I'm going to buy a nice carpenter's hammer. So buy what makes sense for your needs. Right. And, and of course, then there's always the uh... – uh, you know, is is putting stocking away the ammunition just like you do yep. food. And you don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to make it a, a terribly painful ordeal by going to uh, going somewhere and buying a thousand rounds at one time. 
you can just go to the store and you can pick up, uh, when you get milk, bread, butter, etc., you can buy a 20-round box of, uh, or a 50-round box of 22, whatever you're, whatever you're doing. You can just pick up a round, a, a box of, uh, uh, of the ammunition, you know, each time you go. So it's just a, uh, it's just a little tiny bite uh, on your right. pocketbook then. And it's a great way to do everything. You do a little bit of food. You do a little bit of ammo. You do a little bit of uh, extra gardening tools so you can provide food for yourself, a little bit of additional tools so that you can build things and create things, and uh, a little bit of tools uh, for preserving things so you can preserve your own food. And over time, you kind of build up, and, and that's the way to do it. And with ammunition, the beautiful thing is it stores wonderfully. I don't remember what the question was today on my show, but um, it brought up a memory that I have some uh, 8-millimeter Mauser ammunition uh, in a footlocker out of my garage that was made in Turkey in the 1930s, and it was dirt cheap a few years ago. They were giving it away, trying to get rid of it because a big surplus shipment came in, and I've never had one of those rounds misfire. Right. And, you know, that hasn't been really taken very good care of. It came in these <laughs> crappy bandoliers, and a few of them probably would have fired, but, like, the brass was actually corroded around the neck, so I threw those out. Um, so if that ammunition... Uh, you know, the Turkish military wasn't exactly, you know, class act on, on taking care of this ammunition. If that ammunition stored since the 1930s, then ammunition that you bring into your home and store properly has probably a longer shelf life than we do as human beings. Right, and I'm going to – we can keep coming back to the uh, to the rifles and ammunition stuff, but I, I want to try and give, them a, give folks a rounded out thing. Sure. And while you were talking about uh, – well, we're just talking about, you mentioned, uh, you know, say you live in Wyoming and you're going to shoot some deer. And, you know, we get, uh, I hear folks all the time say, uh, out here really where I live, well, you know, if something happens, I'll just uh, I'll just go hunting and I'll just get squirrels and rabbits, etc. And yeah. I'll live off that, which is a good idea if, uh, if instead of a hurricane in Houston, uh, maybe 25 nukes hit. But... If everybody runs out of Houston, I'm telling you, uh, it's going to be like a horde of locusts. If you think that you're going to survive by shooting squirrels and rabbits, that may work for a week or two, but that's going to be out in everybody else's mind, too. They're going to clean everything else out. So you need to have another plan in mind for fresh fruit, fresh food. And uh, your recent uh, podcast, you talked about 10 uncommon edible plants for every backyard. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, yeah, and first of all, you're dead on with what happens to fish and game and even wild forage. Um, people say, well, the other people don't know how to hunt. They don't know how to fish. They don't know how to forage. Well, I'll tell you what, they, they learn really quick when they get hungry. And yeah. even if they don't learn really well, if you've got a couple million people doing something half-assed, they make a big debt in the ability of the people that know what they're doing to, to, to do it successfully. So it becomes under pressure. And all you have to do is find an old-timer that's still around that went through the Great Depression and ask them how many squirrels were around in their neighborhood about two years into the Great Depression. Yeah, uh, And there were none, but there were a whole bunch of rat traps nailed to trees with peanut butter on them. Uh, right, and, you know, and, and they, they ate everything. So they cleaned out need, all the deer. Correct. They cleaned out the deer. They cleaned out the rabbits. They, they cleaned out the squirrels. And in certain parts of the cities, they cleaned out the rats, too, Yeah, uh, because people will eat whatever is available when they have to. So, yeah, I'm big on growing things. I, I did this show recently. You were talking about 10 unusual edibles. Probably can't rattle the list off out of my head, but they were things like uh, Walzantle, which is a uh, – an, uh, a Native American crop that uh, kind of looks like a cross between spinach and broccoli. 
uh, but it'll grow anywhere. Uh, Orach is another uh, great one. It's it's called Aztec spinach, um, and it, it's a, it's a beautiful plant, but it's an edible. And it's high in nutrients and uh, minerals, and, and it doesn't really matter specifically what you plant. The concept though is to learn about as many things as you can and to start planting them. Another one that I recommend to people plant, which sounds crazy because it's a weed, is lamb's quarters. Uh, but if you think about uh, agriculture and how it was founded, all it was was people going out, looking at wild plants and going, hey, that's pretty good to eat. If we take care of it, it'll grow even better. Uh, so that allows you to start adopting and learning that skill. Uh, Jerusalem artichokes is another thing. Jerusalem artichokes, folks, are you see them from about Maryland all the way down to Florida and across the California. They look like sunflowers, but they look like little sunflowers. So that They grow about five feet tall, and each plant will have about 20 or 30 flowers on it. Underground, there are these tubers that are kind of like a potato and kind of like a water chestnut and somewhere in between the two. And every fall, you can go out in these fields and just dig this stuff up if you know where it is. And if you go out and dig these tubers up, you can plant them and start propagating them yourself. I think that it's important that people start to understand and relearn these skills. You know, one of the things that saved this country during the Great Depression is most of the people in this nation during that period of time still knew how to grow food. They still had the skill and they were actively doing it. If right. you think and you're going to farm when you have to, and you've never done it before, it ain't going to happen. you got a <laughs> good two years of failure before you have real success. Just to learn the ropes, to develop your soil, uh, and, and to be able to do things in a sustainable manner. Because throwing high nitrate fertilizer on the ground actually kills your ground over time. So, you, you know, I tell people to do organic gardening, not because I'm an eco-hippie, but because it's a better way to do things long-term and a better way to be sustainable, and you get better results. But it takes time to make these things happen. Um, a great – I can't remember the blog that I, I, I read this on, but there was a kind of a, a hillbilly blogger that stated, the thing that you need to understand is that when you have food, getting more is easy. But when you have no food – getting more is very very hard right right and the like you said the time to start figuring it out is now one of the things i like about the the plants that you mentioned is that uh because they are only uh in some cases no generation in some cases just like one generation from weeds uh there's very little you got to do they're going to grow unless you go out and stand on top of them or or burn them or something they're going to grow and uh so you need to pick the the things that grow for your area uh, and that are easy to – they don't take a lot of work and that are easy to uh, – they're very hardy and that they'll survive. <clears throat> and you need to think about doing it now. And even if you're in uh, – even if you don't have a lot of land, you can still uh, grow enough in on just a back porch to uh, help supplement your diet uh, for, you know, a, a family of two – fairly easily you're correct there's a video um if you go to google video and you search for in grave danger of failing food you guys might want to jot that down in grave danger of failing food you'll find a video uh of bill mollison who is the founder of uh the permaculture movement and part of this video he goes out onto a patio of a little apartment in the city and uh, he goes there's about three square meters here and then he puts up a trellis so that uh, the beans can climb up the trellis he goes okay now there's another two square meters here uh and then he says well we could do something over top here for grapevines to grow and we could have another three square meters overhead and now we're going to do that we put a little fish tank in and and says now we're going to grow some uh, taro root and some uh, water chestnut 
And basically, by the time he's done with this little project on a patio, he says, now you can't live on this, but this will provide a couple that live in this apartment about one-fifth of their dietary requirements. Right. So that's what can be done on a porch. Now, there's another family out in California called the Dervaises. Um, and, and these guys uh, live right near Pasadena, right off the highway. They have a one-tenth of an acre lot. And from that lot, they produce between six to 8,000 pounds of food a year. So you know, the thought that you need this huge you know, 10, 20, 40-acre uh, farm to be able to subsistence farm is absolutely ludicrous. The key is learning the techniques, and instead of having you know, five garden beds in a row, learning how to stack plantings so that you take advantage of a layering system. And what I mean by that is, let's say we're going to plant fruit trees. So we plant, let's say, some nut trees, and we plant full-size nut trees, and those are a canopy layer. And then we come in, and in between those, we plant semi-dwarf fruit trees, and then we plant dwarf fruit trees. So now we have taken, and we face that south, so they get solar exposure, so the big trees don't crowd out and shade out the little trees. We come forward with that, and that's where we start planting our vegetables, our herbs, and we start planting things like our bush crops, so our berries, you know, uh, gooseberries, uh, josta berries, uh, blackberries, blueberries, everything kind of just stacks forward out of that. And then we go back into the tree layer and we start planting things that we normally think of as garden crops, uh, like beans and squash that are climbers. And you think of a bean or a squash, a climbing bean or a climbing squash, as being a uh, garden plant. But the reality is they're forest plants. Have you ever wondered why a pumpkin uh, or a butternut squash or a climbing bean has a, a, you know, a, a leaf as big as your face? Well, it's a huge solar collector. That's what a leaf is. It's for collecting solar energy. Now, a plant with huge leaves is designed to actually grow in kind of a mottled shade environment. So now, instead of taking up land space to grow your squash and your beans and some other climbers, you're using space that's actually being used by a tree. Of course, we have to plant the squash and beans every year, but once the tree's established, it produces year after year after year. And then when you start looking at it that way, the concept of producing 6,000 pounds out of a suburban lot stops seeming so impossible. Right. And that's what it's really all about, is understanding the interrelationships and working with nature instead of against it. If you look at modern agriculture, uh, modern farming, we, we use biochemical warfare. We use uh, you know, tractors that, that take the place of tanks. We, use, uh, we spray with planes as though we were, you know, it looks like the same equipment that we go to war with. And then that's why we end up with sterile land. We might produce a lot of corn for a while or a lot of beans for a while, but eventually the land breaks down and it stops producing. But if we, if we work together with nature, and I'm not saying this kind of, again, not in an eco-hippie way, folks, but in a, a very just understanding the mechanics of the environment way, we produce systems that are sustainable and they produce for us over and over and over again. And there's a fundamental in this, and that is the more edges you create, the more abundance you create. Anybody that's a bass fisherman or any kind of fisherman at all knows that you don't get in a great big lake, drive your boat out to the middle of the lake, and drop your line in. You fish the edges, and you're either fishing points or structures underground, but one way or another, you're, you're, you're fishing a point where two different uh, functioning zones come together, and that, that point is where a surplus is. And that is a constant in nature. It's not just for the fishermen. Uh, if you're a hunter, you don't just you know, walk out in the middle of a field. You hunt tree lines. You hunt uh, bisections. It's always a place where two areas come together that we end up with abundance. It's the only place in nature that we get a surplus. So when we create a monoculture system, just a big flat square field, we have only four edges. When we create a stacked layer system, we have an abundance of edges, so we have an abundance of surplus. 
Right, right, and that's you're right. You should you can't think of of just the the square footage on the surface. Like folks that have uh, uh, oh the uh, you know the the covered thing. I can't think of it right now in their garden or in their backyard. The uh, greenhouse? No, not the greenhouse. The you know the it's the um, the little uh, the little thing with the roof. Uh, anyway. You can you can create one. You know, a lot of people grow uh, will grow grapevines and stuff uh, uh, to cover it. But you can grow. We grow beans and. Uh, you mean an arbor? Arbor. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. My, uh, uh, we've got. Uh, you know, you can grow uh, a huge amount of beans on the arbors, and uh, and also create shade for the uh, the other plants that need shade and. Uh, uh, so vertical is always, uh, you should always be thinking about that. Uh, you know, about 25 years ago, I read a book about uh, uh, about growing stuff in containers. And uh, one of the things they talked about was a, this wasn't necessarily a container, but it was called a Japanese tomato ring. And uh, that's where you had, you built a, uh, a cylindrical uh, vehicle for, for holding the dirt out of uh, chicken wire or something like that. And then you started piling your compost into it. And then you planted the tomatoes, four tomatoes, uh, plants around the outside edges of it and pinned them up as they grew. <clears throat> and it uh, it produces about 100 to 150 pounds of tomatoes. And uh, that's in uh, two square meters. So, uh, And the, the other thing that I want to mention about this, too, is just like what you said earlier, if you wait to do this, if you wait to get started on this, you're going to be several years behind the curve. So all the stuff that Jack was just telling you, those are the things that you need to think about doing today. If you if you think you're going to get an orange from a tree in six weeks whenever you need uh, some food, it ain't going to happen. You need to be planting the trees today. You need to go out and experimenting with uh, different things in your garden, in containers. It, it's And just like an apple seed event where you learn uh, rifle marksmanship, Growing stuff is fun, and uh, and you'll very you'll be very pleased and very proud of yourself uh, when you bring your stuff in, set it on the table, and you and it came out of your garden, even if it's just a container garden. You're going to be very happy with yourself from that. You know what? And the other thing is, as we're talking about something, and you probably have some regular listeners that say, "Is this the gardening hour, or is this the the rifleman radio show?" <laughs> and folks, these things are so interconnected, though. There's an old saying that's absolutely true. An army marches on its stomach, meaning that your soldier is only as useful to the point at which you can feed him. And when you can't feed your soldier anymore, he stops being useful to you as a soldier. Well, if you're even a soldier for yourself to protect your own family and your own land, if you can't feed yourself, then nothing else matters. I've had people get kind of uh, heavy with animosity on, on some of the comments on my blog and saying none of this matters if you don't have guns and weapons and a means to defend yourself. But my question to you then is what are you defending? Because yeah. if you're going to starve, um, you can't eat bullets. Yeah, and you, can, you have to eat. You can or let somebody die. else. You can let somebody take by force your starvation. That'll be a good thing for them to take. Correct. Uh, Correct. Yeah, so I, I, I'm all the, for being able to defend yourself, but I'm also for having something worth defending. Well, whenever I was introducing the show, the the whole point of this and the way that I that I tried to frame it uh, to the folks uh, when I was explaining to them why we're going to have this show is because uh, as a rifleman, you have 
a series of duties, a series of obligations uh, that you have for yourself, your family, your community, your state, your nation. But the only way you're going to be able to fulfill those obligations and those duties is by making sure that you are uh, uh, that you are prepared uh, in all manners of ways. And uh, heck, I, I start with uh, with uh, my survival program starts with a seatbelt. You know when I'm driving, <laughs> because I've got five children. And uh, rule one: wake up tomorrow breathing. There you go. If you don't uh, wake up tomorrow breathing, you failed to survive, right? Yeah, I told my wife. I said, "Look, I said we wear our seatbelts not because we enjoy wearing them, etc., anything else. I said, but because it's our responsibility to survive the impact that so we can provide first aid to the children." Correct. And, uh, so that's the the theory behind this. When we talk about if we're talking about gardening and food and everything else, it's not because, uh, uh, like Jack said, not because we've turned into vegans or uh, uh, or pacifists. It's because you're going to have to have food every single day. Uh, you know, you just mentioned veganism, right? Well, I need to grow food not just so that I can have vegetables to eat, but if I want to eat things like eggs and the chickens that produce the eggs, well, I have to feed them too. So I have to start looking at how I can provide not just the food for myself, but I can provide food for uh, small livestock. Uh, there's a, a sponsor of mine uh, called Backyard Food Production, and this lady Marjorie that runs it has this little rabbit breeding operation. They eat about two rabbits a week. Uh, they provide about 80% of the feed the rabbits need from stuff that they grow on their property. So it, it, even even growing food is not just about – um, uh, eating a vegetarian-style diet. It's also about feeding uh, herbivores so that you can be a carnivore at some point uh, as well and be able to eat uh, protein sources. And then the other thing that's interesting to me, I was thinking about this today as I was getting ready to do this interview with you, is how closely related um, gardening and, and, and growing edible things is to uh, your movement. If you think about it, it's not called the... Uh, the the gun project or the uh, the rifleman project it's called the appleseed project that's it right and it's based on the fact that one man was able to spread so much and what he did it with was something that was edible and continued to produce over and over again and I think we can do and, and what you're saying is you can do the same thing with riflemen if we teach riflemen to be true riflemen um, then we now we don't just create students we create teachers. And my view is that we need to be creating teachers in all of these disciplines, not just how to shoot a rifle well and how to, to do that with honor and safety and respect, but we need to be teaching people how to be teachers of how to feed ourselves, how to take care of ourselves, how to take care of our families, how to defend ourselves, but how to defend our neighbors. I was just on a recent show I mentioned it about concealed carry. When you're carrying concealed, it's, there's, so, there's some level of – you can defend yourself with that. But let's face it, you're walking around, you have your, uh, your weapon in your belt uh, on your back hip. If somebody walks up to you and sticks a knife in you, you don't get a chance to draw that weapon. The, the actual opportunity that you're most likely to have to make a difference is when someone attacks somebody else in your presence and you're a third-party observer. And I said that we had a duty and a responsibility as people that carry to protect others. And a guy chimed in on my blog, and he said, hey, look, there's no legal requirement to that. And I no. said, duty and responsibility have nothing to do with the law. 
A duty and responsibility is a moral imperative as an American. And as you master these skills, folks, with a rifle, with a handgun, I don't care if it's with a baseball bat. As you master self-defense skills, you have a responsibility to protect the people that cannot protect themselves. Now, let's be honest. In a big, giant, huge, end-of-the-world scenario, there's a limit to how much of that you can do. But in your day-to-day life, and even in that end-of-the-world scenario, you can't save everybody, but you can save one or two. And that's your duty because those are Americans out there, too. And we have a duty to protect each other. I completely agree. And, I, you know, I even go even, I'll even go a little bit farther with that uh, in my thinking, and that is... Uh, I'm it's probably I'm sure it's no secret to anybody that I'm usually armed wherever I go, and uh, that's because I feel it's I have a duty not just to myself. I mean, whether I live or die is uh, is just a little tiny tiny piece of the picture as a whole. But because I have a duty, I think that if there is something I can do to help somebody else, then I need to be ready and able to do that. Now, along with that, along with each of my, like I'll have, uh, I'll usually have a long gun uh, in each of my, wherever I am, in a case, and then I'll have my handguns. But every single time that I have a firearm, I also have a package that contains uh, uh, two of the military-type bandages and two containers of blood stop. Because I also feel that, if I'm going to be carrying around something that breaks things, then I better be ready to fix the things that I broke if that if I need to. You know, so, and that's true. I, I, you know, if you break in my house, I, I've said kind of as a joke, you get a free membership in the Horizontal Club. But when I look at the reality on the other side of that, once you're no longer a threat, if I can save your life, I'm going to do it. Right. Um, and then, then our system can judge your actions. Uh, and I might even pay for that because you might turn around and sue me, and our screwed-up justice system uh, may bite me in the, in, in the rear end. But I'm still going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Right, and it is your duty. It's your duty to be – you can't just uh, – I'm just going to leave it at what you said because it's the right thing. It's the right thing to do. Uh, so, so being, uh, and I tell folks this uh, all the time that being a rifleman is much more than just the score of two ten or above on the AQT. That's uh, that's where you get a rifleman's patch. But being a rifleman, living the life of a rifleman, it's a lifestyle change, and part of that lifestyle is that now you're looking at the bigger picture. You're not looking at just uh, you and your immediate surroundings, you're looking at how you fit into the bigger picture. And it should always be with the thought of how can I improve myself? How can I be a better person? How can I be a better uh, father, a better husband, uh, a better member of my community? How can I be a better member of my state, of my nation? And you should always be looking for how to better yourself. And that includes making sure that you're around after something happens or that you have thought out ways uh, to improve your odds of survivability and to make sure that you're around not just so that you can be alive, but so that you can help fix the things that got broken whenever something happened. 
Yeah, and you're, you're dead on, and I've, I've heard people say things like, if it comes down to it and I have to die for my family, I'll die for my family. And my response to that is, how selfish? Because yeah. once you've died, who's going to take care of them then? There's an imperative that you take care of yourself as you take care of them, because this is a fundamental about preparedness. If, if you don't hear anything else that I say tonight, please understand this. No one cares as much about you and your family as you. And no one will work as hard to help them as you. Even the person that you've known your entire life that will be there for you and do everything they can, they won't care as much as you do because they have their own family to take care of. So if you want your family to be well, then you have to make sure that you do everything you can so that you wake up breathing tomorrow with them so that you can take care of them because the government will not fix your problem because the government cannot fix your problems. It won't happen. It's not going to happen. And it even, it's not even malice and some people that believe like the government's out to get us or whatever. They cannot do it because there's over 300 million people in this country and about half of them don't do anything productive. And they've got their hands full taking from the producers and giving to the consumers alone. And when something goes wrong, all the wheels go right off the tracks. And again, these big disasters that we've talked about, 9-11, Katrina, uh, Ike, uh, going back 10 years, the L.A. earthquake, uh, Hurricane Andrew, all of these things are minor in comparison to some of the things that we could face someday. There could be a day when we get a real uh, flu pandemic or another disease pandemic, and the only solution is going to be to stay in place. And we have egotistical people who say, you're not going to tell me I have to stay home. Well, that's another selfish attitude because you go out because you believe you should be able to go out, and you come home and you don't just infect yourself and, and cause yourself an illness, possibly a life-threatening illness, but every person you claim to care about. Right. And, and my question for you is can you stay put for a month? And most Americans have to answer that if they're honest with no. Yeah, because we've talked about that here. My wife is a uh, public school teacher, and uh, we've discussed that here because I've told her, I go, look, whenever – Whenever it looks like something is getting ready to happen, I said we're coming in and uh, we're locking the, we're, we're pulling everybody in, all the tribes in, and we're locking the doors and we're not going anywhere. We're not going to the store, uh, we're not going to school, we're not going anywhere because the best way uh, to survive a disease is not to experience the disease at all. And the only way you're going to do that is by not coming into contact uh, with anyone. That's almost impossible, but you can certainly limit your exposure to it. And, Correct. Uh, one of the other things that I did, like uh, when I was telling you about the Katrina Rita events, was <clears throat> I thought about that and I said, you know, uh, just like you were saying, you don't, de you can't depend on the authorities to take care of your problems, and that's any problem you have. If there was a, uh, if somebody was uh, was posing some life-threatening danger or, or some aggressive action, even if the sheriff's department wanted to come and help me unless they were uh, within sight of me, it's probably not going to happen because they have uh, probably at least eight to 900 other calls that they're going to have to go to first. And, You're correct. Uh, You're absolutely the same thing correct. with the, the, the doctors and the hospitals. If they want to help you, they'd like to, but they have, uh, you know, they have the other 300 patients and stuff first. And I, I thought about that for a long time, and then uh, I went on. I started looking at, at solutions for this. And one of the things that came to my mind was I said, you know, I myself am not a doctor, but I can list uh, probably six or seven people I know in this area 
that are uh, doctors, registered nurses, heck, even a veterinarian has to go through, uh, through training uh, that could mean the difference between life and death. But what are they missing? If they can't get to their, their hospital gear, et cetera, what are, what are they missing? Most the answer is medical save, supplies. Yeah, me, most of them can't save lives without supplies. Um, they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to rely on traditional methods. And, and to be fair to them, there's a lot of things that can't be done with traditional methods. It's like saying, okay, a guy's a mechanic and your car's broken down. We'll fix my car. Well, if your transmission's blown out and he doesn't have a new transmission, um, he can't lay hands on it and say, I am a mechanic, drive. It doesn't work right. that way. And if your doctor needs anesthesia, antibiotics, um, uh, sutures, uh, scalpels, and other th- and assistance to actually perform complex operations, and he doesn't have them, he's like the mechanic that doesn't have parts for the car. He knows exactly what to do, and he can want to do it, but he doesn't have the means to do it. And even if he does, in an overloaded situation, he's one man. He can only work on so many people. I want to put some some figures into people. I don't like to talk too much about causative factors and try to scare people, but I do think people need to occasionally have a wake-up call. In 1918, there were roughly 180 million Americans, and we had the Spanish flu epidemic. It had an infection rate of about 20%, meaning about 20% of the people in the country got the flu. It had a death rate of only 1.5%, actually a little bit less than that. It killed a half a million people. Okay, so infection rate, 20%. Lethality rate, 1.5 of the infected, half a million people dead. Around the world, it killed over 50 million people. Yeah. Today, there's 300 million people in the United States. So wrap your head around something that seems as minor as a 25 to 30% infection, infection rate with a 10% lethality rate, and we're looking at a death toll that numbers 30 to 40 million Americans. Um, we're also looking at a hospitalization rate that numbers about 70 million Americans. Guess what, folks? There ain't 70 million hospital beds. Um, I'm not sure how many there are. Somebody looked it up on my forum, but I can't remember. I think it's in the number of about 3 million hospital beds in the United States. And there's people that need heart transplants and dialysis that are occupying those beds every day. If you call a hospital bed up and go, do you have a surplus of beds? The answer is never yes. So what that means is you've got people lined up in gymnasiums uh, with doctors and nurse practitioners and what have you doing whatever they can. And will we ever have a pandemic like that? The answer is sure we will. Will we have one while you and I are still here? I have no idea. Yeah. And anybody that tells you they do is full of crap because right. no one knows. But there's one constant with viruses, bacteria, and that is mutation. And they have mutation periods uh, that are measured in hours, not years. They go through multi-generations in a couple of days. And all the virus needs is one good day, one good day to mutate the right way. And you get a highly infectious, human-to-human transmittable virus of any strain with a high infection and high lethality rate, and we are absolutely, as a nation, not suited to handle it. And the only thing that we can do at that point is take care of ourselves and isolate ourselves. And that sounds very harsh, but as a father, as a mother, you have a duty to protect your children first. And going to work is not an option in these situations. It just isn't. Right, and there's all different levels. Now, there's all different levels of threats, and there's only so many that you can actually accommodate, unless, uh, as far as even uh, medically, unless you're a uh, you're a doctor and you happen to have to live in a hospital with uh, with supplies, and your all your family members are nurses, etc. And you've got generators on and on. 
So and then you you're going to start... see, even with that, you know what you're going to end up with? A million people screaming, help me. Yeah. Pulling you well, apart, begging for your help. You're almost in a worse situation then than just being isolated and on your own because if people are going to go to the hospitals and demand help, and what's going to happen is in one of these situations, people that are beyond help are going to still feel that they're entitled to it. And you get to a situation where you, you know how battlefield triage is. This guy's going to die. I'm sorry, that's the way that it is. We've got 20 people laying here needing care. We, we can take care of 15 of them. The five that we know are going to die, if they happen to still be kicking when we get rid of the other 15, we'll see what we can do for them. And right. those decisions have to be made. Now we're talking about making them with numbers in the hundreds of thousands to millions. Right, and the, the, my point is that uh, there's a lot of things that you're never going to be able to fix or prepare for. But what you have to do you have to be to think about those things that you can, you know, what you can Correct. deal with, what you can prepare for. And, and a lot of it is just the very basics. Now, you go back to, uh, uh, heck, uh, you go back 100 years ago. You can even go back, well, go back 100 years. And you look at the folks that, uh, the folks that died from the common cold, the folks that died from anything that would produce a fever. Because with a fever, you know, a fever is your body's natural defense against the virus. It's going to heat it up high enough to kill it, but it's got to walk that fine line between killing the virus and destroying uh, your body, your organs, etc., your mind. And uh, they didn't have the, even the simplest thing, which is aspirin back then. So you start off with the basics. You know, if I, if I get a fever, what can I use to help with that? And so that means aspirin. You can right. buy aspirin in bulk. And uh, that way you'll have it for yourself, and uh, you could you have some that you could give to others if they need it. it aspirin is pretty cheap. You can buy the 500 or even 1,000-count containers fairly cheap, even at Walmart. And that can actually end up uh, being a barter item. You know, Correct. you can actually and, and trade. And what I'm saying is go beyond that, though, because – you can get to a point where even those supplies run out or that you just, even though if you had them, you end up stuck in a place where they're not available to you because you, you were prepared, but you got separated from your point of preparedness. So things like, okay, you have fever and you need to reduce it. Well, if you can't use aspirin, well, as long as you can find willow tree and you peel green willow bark and you boil that, you have a fever reducer. If you have an infection, you can make a poultice of something like uh, plantain. Uh, or um, uh, mugwort, and, and quite a few other uh, uh, herbal treatments like calendulum and marigold. Uh, all of these things can draw infections out and have high antibiotic uh, capabilities. And then, like my, my wife always says, if you go to the doctor and he prescribes you antibiotics and you really didn't need them, well, vacuum seal those suckers and put them in your kit. Yeah. Uh, with everything except stuff in the tetracycline family, uh, because tetracycline uh, and its derivatives long-term can actually um, develop things that will cause you uh, severe problems. Uh, I can't remember the name of the condition. There was a condition people used to get uh, with infected rye uh, back in the, the, like the Salem witch trial eras where they hallucinated and things like that. It's similar right. to that, but I can't remember what it's called. I don't remember it either, but I, I remember reading about it because I think they were also blaming uh, uh, the early uh, werewolfism. Uh, Correct. Correct. I can't remember what it's called. It's a fungus. That, somebody in the chat room can probably Google it for us and tell us what it is, so we'll stop thinking about it. But it's a fungus that grows on the rye plant, and tetracycline develops something very, very similar, not the same thing. But 
it has not only those effects, but it can actually be lethal. So, but all of your other antibiotics, you can store them long term, especially in the refrigerator or the freezer and vacuum sealed. Uh, and the worst thing that happens to the rest of them is their their effectiveness degrades over time, but they're not going to harm you. Because if you talk to doctors that have served like in the Peace Corps and in third world nations, they'll tell you that even though they were a doctor and trained as a surgeon maybe, in a lot of situations they were in, the one thing they really could do was use antibiotics and, uh, and, and medications because they were in environments where even they couldn't do surgery. They didn't have what they needed to do surgery. Uh, it's ergot. That's exactly what it is. Somebody just put it in the forum. forum. Right, right. Yeah, what I did was uh, in order to prepare medically, I went, uh, I went on eBay and uh, I started doing searches everywhere. And I, I eventually... Uh, started buying uh, medical supplies that uh, uh, in bulk, so I could get a good price on them. So I bought medical supplies in bulk. I bought thousands of uh, bandages. Uh, I bought cases of sutures and uh, on and on. Every, all of this stuff just because I wanted to. Uh, I prepared a huge kit that is dedicated to my church, so that uh, so that it we can get uh, aid to the church, to the members of the church, uh, you know, if first off, if, if possible. I bought a couple of the uh, vacuum-sealed uh, huge containers from the, uh, the old airborne units uh, that actually open up into a, uh, uh, you know, a table and chairs and everything in cabinets and put the supplies in there. And then, uh, and then I still have a huge amount uh, that I've stockpiled because, like I said, if... If something happens, you can even get you can get a veterinarian, you can get somebody, you can you can do something, but you're not going to do anything without having some kind of supplies. So right. I, I bought a, a huge amount of supplies, and you can get them fairly cheap uh, because they can't they have to get rid of them from the uh, the hospitals, etc. Whenever they go out of date on their containers, but I talked to manufacturers, and they said the date. Uh, on there is not for how long the the gear is good for it's for how good the container is good for right. if it were getting heavy usage they have to put a date on the container but they can't use it after that but they can sell it to you and i'm telling you an an out of date uh bandage there's nothing wrong no yeah no, it it's, it's break much down. better than a wad of kleenex and a bread wrapper you know what i'll tell you what it comes down to the fact that Everybody that sells anything covers their ass, so they put a date on anything. Um, you know, but but you're right. A bandage, a gauze, a clotting agent, all of these things don't don't run out. I've just posted a link uh, to a site. Uh, it's a friend of mine. It's called ITS Tactical, and a kit that they have. Originally they called it a blowout kit, but somebody made a stink over a trademark issue. Not bug out blowout kit, but it's it's to uh, to respond to the. Uh, the, the, the primary um, reasons that people die in, in the field, which is asphyxiation, uh, tension hemothorax, uh, and, and some other things. And I believe everybody, even if you don't get one from ITS Tactical, you should put together your own kit for this. And these are things like a tube that allows when uh, you have bleeding into the uh, chest cavity uh, to allow that blood out so that, that you don't end up having a person suffocate. Uh, because these are the, you know, it's an extremity bleed, a chest wound, uh, tension hemothorax, or uh, straight-up asphyxiation. These are the primary reasons that people die in the field. And if you don't have a method uh, to to accommodate those, so 
you know, gauze is great, but without a clotting agent, if you've got a major artery severed uh, in, a, in a limb, uh, you're not going to be able to shut that down. Yeah, I bought, uh, I bought 400 packages of, uh, of the clotting agents from the Mormon church, and this was right before, uh, r- right before all the difficulties now because I bought it uh, for roughly a dollar a package uh, because nobody else knew what it was. Because normally it goes now. If you try and buy it now, it's uh, twenty-five to forty-five dollars a package, and uh, so I got a great deal on that. But I also bought uh, cases of the the very long needle catheter needles, and so what I do is I package those up and uh, and I just pr- I print out the all the exactly how to uh, how to treat the like the tension pneumothorax. With the with the needle to let the pressure out of the chest, and uh, and so the supplies with the uh, uh, the sutures, the uh, uh, you know the patches for stopping uh, the uh, like a sucking chest wound, uh, the directions, uh, put the directions on the package there with it, and uh, uh, all of the bandages and everything for. Uh, I have that for each of my vehicles, each of uh, any place I go, I have one stashed there because, like you said, if you're, if you're somewhere other than where your gear is, then the gear is worthless. So correct, correct. And that's why you sure should always have, have with gear it. with you, but you can't carry everything all the time. It's, it's just not possible. Right. Uh, you, uh, you mind taking some calls? I'm absolutely up for it, man. Let's do it. All right. I'm going to... Grab some of the callers here. We've got, uh, uh, if you'd like to call in, Karen's posted the numbers several times. Uh, it's 347-308-8790. All right. I've got a, a tricky switchboard here. And, uh, <clears throat> okay, area code 580-278, you're on the air. Okay, area code five eight zero two seven eight. Okay, let's try another one. Okay, area code eight three two five three three. Okay, hold on. The uh, there you go. Area code eight three two. You're on the air. Can you hear me? Okay, let's try one more. I don't know if it's if this is me. The uh, the switchboard, just like in the rest of the blog talk pages, takes commands only when it refreshes itself. And then the page continuously refreshes itself. So, <clears throat> all right. Area code three six one five four seven. You're on the air. Hey, Scout. Yay! Who's this? This is Josiah Barcroft. Well, hey, how you doing, Josiah? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. How about well, welcome you? to the show. Well, <clears throat> good. Uh, you know, Scout, um, this is just wonderful because now my mother assures me that I'm going to be uh, helping her with the garden uh, this year a bunch. So, Well, see, that should have already been on your list of things to do. You're a man, Josiah. You should already have your own special uh, plot set up, not just... Uh, 
for to help your family, but to help your other family. Because uh, say something were to happen, you would need a, a plot of your own to take care of yourself and your new wife so that you could uh, help repopulate the world, right? <laughs> I know I'm making you sweat, Jack. This is Josiah. He's from uh, he's from Texas. Here, he is a uh, new member of the uh, the Appleseed instructor instructing team. He's been with us for about a year now, and uh, he's a good man. Well, Do you have any questions Josiah. for uh, for uh, Jack, Josiah? Um, I did. Uh, <clears throat> he was uh, beginning to uh, talk about uh, ten plants that he uh, recommended, 10 uncommon plants um, that he uh, recommended um, that everyone have. Um, and I think we got like three of them, but I didn't recall uh, him going through the entire 10. Correct. Let me let me pull this up. And just, just for your edification, these were uh, 10 uncommon plants that I recommended that you consider. So you don't have to have necessarily all 10 of them, but I think they all – Develop, uh, deserve consideration. I've got the list pulled up in front of me. So here they are in order that I did them on a show recently. Um, Orach, which is a uh, kind of a spinach substitute that will grow anywhere. Ground cherries, which uh, you grow them just like tomatoes. They have these little paper lanterns around them. They look kind of like tomatillos, but they taste like a tropical fruit. Uh, calendula, which is also known as pot marigold, which is an edible flower. That's uh, not just something you can eat. It's also got medicinal properties. Sunberry, which is another plant that looks an awful lot like a tomato, but it grows a a berry that looks like a big huckleberry or a blueberry. Um, Wazantle, which is actually spelled H-U-A-N-Z-O-N-T-L-E, which is a a traditionally used Native American plant that looks like a cross between spinach and broccoli, except that it's red. Uh, Asian long beans, which uh, will grow anywhere and heat can't kill. Uh, New Zealand spinach, which you can grow straight through the summer, unlike conventional spinach. Amaranth, which is an amazing grain with a million uses. Uh, Lamb's quarters, which is a wild plant uh, weed, uh, but can be used as a spinach substitute, and then the seeds can be used to grind to a flower. Uh, And buckwheat, which is kind of commonly available, but is probably the best grain for a home grain producer. And my my site is www.thesurvivalpodcast.com. And that show was only from uh, yesterday, so it's uh, episode 383, second episode on the main page. Uh, and you can check that out and hear the whole episode on those plants. I posted the uh, the address for that show in the chat room for you guys that are looking for it. It's posted now. It's the, uh, the episode 383. If you click on that, that will take you to that podcast episode. And there's also seed sources for every single one of those plants in the show notes for that show. Oh, cool. Well, thank you, sir. No problem. Thanks for calling in. Thank you, Josiah. <clears throat> yes, sir. Cool always name a pleasure too. to talk to you, Scout. <laughs> What's that? That's I said it's a... always a pre- pleasure to talk with you. Hey, always a pleasure speaking with you, my brother, and I hope to see you here soon, okay? And yes, I was sir. saying, that's a cool name, man. I like that, Josiah. That's a great name. All right. Uh, let's uh, thank you, Josiah, and... Uh, I'm going to bring another caller on the air now, area code 410. You're on the air. Hey, you got moving forward, gentlemen. How y'all doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing great. I'm glad to be listening to this show uh, with these great uh, insights to survival. Where are you uh, calling from? I'm calling from uh, Maryland. From Maryland. Okay. Yeah. Well, go and, ahead. Um, Jack's here, ready for you to pick his brain. Well, well Jack and um, I'll, I'll tell you, Jack and Mr. Rifleman, uh, 
I'm glad about these helpful hints you're throwing out there tonight. Uh, they're helpful hints to help Americans uh, for what may or may not lie ahead. And I don't think any of it's crazy. I think it's all relevant and germane. Well, just like Jack was saying earlier, and this is the way you should be looking at it, is that this isn't – he's not trying to get you, and I'm not trying to get you in the mindset of go out now and start digging your bunker and then start filling it up with your canned goods and get your ammunition in there. That's not what we're talking about. No, Just like he was comparing is. it to – you've got insurance on your home, right? You've got your homeowner's insurance. You've got your medical insurance. Why wouldn't you do something to ensure the survival of the, of the person that is supposed to be taking care of those things? And the answer is that you should be doing it every day. You should be keeping that in your mind every day so that you're living this kind of a lifestyle rather than, than thinking that you're going to get this all accomplished in the seven or eight days leading up to some event. Well, this is Jack, right? Uh, this is Scout. Oh, Scout. Okay, sorry. Uh, this is the first time I've called into your show. But uh, may I share something uh, from the Department of Homeland Security? That's okay. It. Uh, at the local library, uh, www.ready.gov, and I, I posted it in the chat room, www.ready.gov, there's a website. And the government, uh, you know, the federal government has given us uh, brochures and put them in our local libraries. Can I read an extract? It'll take me a second. Yeah, go right ahead. It says that everyone should have a plan, and it talks about family. And on the inside green cover, it says potential threats. And it says terrorists are working to obtain biological, chemical, and nuclear, radiological weapons, and the threat of an attack is real. And then they talk about here at the Department of Homeland Security, um, they're working as an organization across America to strengthen the nation's security. And they say this to us, whenever possible, we want to stop the attacks. And then they go on to talk about things we need to do to be prepared. And they talk about uh, things you can do to prepare is uh, assemble a supply kit and develop a family plan. And then they go on to say that for a man-made or natural disaster, there's different things you can do. And they go on to talk about food, water, clean air, basic supplies, stay in place, or if you have to boogie out, all those things are covered at www.ready.gov. The only thing they leave out is, well, for me, is a Remington 870 shotgun. That's going with me whether <laughs> well, I stay at what, home and boogie what, out. What we're but, talking about is making sure that that you're living this plan every day. That you're not wait. That, that you don't. Uh, that you don't hear the alarm sirens going off at some time other than noon on Friday and say, okay, grab, get the plan out of the drawer and let's start figuring it out. Hey, uh, we're not, you know. When I say when I say we, I'm talking about kind of myself and my neighbors. Um, there's no bunch of survivalists here. Uh, it's a bunch of concerned citizens. What I just read came from the United States government. I didn't paraphrase. No, no, no. I, I understand and that. It's www.ready.gov. Right. So, so, as, so as a result, um, uh, me and my neighbors, we're okay. We we can we can hunker down or we can boogie out. Uh, we've got our plan, and and I am so thankful to be able to listen to this blog talk radio show tonight and hear you talking about not only taking care of yourself but your neighbors, right? And also addressing some hard issues like medical issues, and those things are really hard. Yeah, because if you if you survive, that's good. But if you survive. 
and that's all there is, that's going to be a very lonely existence. You want to make sure that uh, you pull as many of uh, your fellow uh, community members through as possible. And uh, Absolutely. And, and you know what? I just wanted to call in and thank you for having a venue to share ideas. And I appreciate the thoughts about the seeds and uh, uh, beets grow in 30 days. Keep those beet seeds in the season. <laughs> okay. Radish, Thanks beets, a lot. Thank you, call. Thank you, brother. Thanks. Yeah. And one thing I want to point out, though, folks, about the government resources, the big hole in all the government suggestions is everything seems to revolve around three days, 72 hours. That's a great first step, but a 72-hour kit is one day short of a four-day disaster. Right. Uh, and if you look at the disasters we've had recently, they've all lasted a hell of a lot longer than three days. So that's a great kind of first step, uh, but understand that 72 hours is to get you through the the inconvenient power outage. It's not to get you through the citywide blackout that's going to take two or three weeks. Last year, around this time, we had an ice storm uh, that didn't look that big uh, as far as how wide it was. It was only maybe 50, 60 miles wide in some points. But it ran from El Paso, Texas, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in one great big line. And uh, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, but there were people in Kentucky, Tennessee, and northwestern Arkansas that went without power for over 20 days. That's a long time to be without power. If you want to understand what that's like, walk out to your breaker, throw your main breaker switch, and just leave it that way for about six hours on a cold night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'll put you in touch with it really fast. Yeah, and that's not just uh, – uh, that's not just your electricity. Uh, you're going to be talking about everything now. Uh, every once in a while, the water will go out in your house. And you're going to be absolutely amazed. If you're not already amazed, you'll be absolutely amazed by how many times during the course of that day you walk over to that faucet and you turn the handle and nothing comes out. Correct. I mean, Correct. You're, you, you just your jaw will drop by the number of times when you don't have the water at how much you use it during the day. So you better make sure that you have some other alternatives uh, set up and planned. And just like Jack was saying, that uh, the .gov is a good place to start, but you also want to keep in your mind uh, is that .gov were the uh, the folks that were running the Katrina uh, uh, relief situation. So it's a good place to start, but make sure that you go that you have gone beyond that and pass the uh, the four day survival kits or the three day survival kits, and and that you start living your plan that you start living your plan for making sure that uh that you get through some of these uh, situations absolutely completely agree with you we got any more callers okay hold on we got uh <clears throat> area code 812-287 yeah this is tech Russ. hey tech how you doing i'm doing pretty good doing pretty good uh, lively conversation tonight. I'm enjoying it very much. We got any questions for Jack? Um, no, uh, not. Uh, I, I'm curious about a few things. Um, I, I knew your site. I just went over and, and started looking around, and I'm uh, very excited about it. And uh, you know, old hat on the the prepared stuff. Uh, actually, the the one I've started up recently that's been my big black hole is the ability to communicate. So I uh, I got my tech license for ham, and I'm working on general. 
uh, and getting connected with uh, another community that's uh, very tied into uh, preparedness. Um, I'm curious if you, you have any thoughts on the ability to communicate after a disaster. I think it's huge, and I think uh, what you're doing is a great first step. It's one of those things that's on my list that's, uh, you know, 100 miles long is uh, getting my HAM certification as well, um, j just so that I have that ability. I mean, one of the uh, – we actually have a, a HAM operators club on our forum, and uh, one of the, the guys from that forum pointed out to me that an experienced operator can send a message all the way around the world with five watts of power. And then a lot of these disasters, the first people to set up communication links within the disaster areas are volunteer hams that go in there and do that. I think that's a great step. I think we can also do some other things. I use uh, radios around the house, not just for communication around the property, uh, but for security as well that are called MERS radios, M-U-R-S uh, radios. And they're uh, an open frequency. You don't need a license for them. And the systems come with motion detectors. So not only do we have the ability to communicate around our property uh, without using cell phones or things like that, th those should go down, but we also have four sectors of alert that if anything trips one of those motion detectors, they don't just go to the handhelds, but they also go to a base station. So there, there's a tremendous number of options out there, uh, HAM, MERS, the good old-fashioned walkie-talkies. Uh, there's really a place for CB radios. There's, it's a good uh, a link between uh, members of a group or members of a family. So I think it's tremendously important. And if you just remember 9-11, I was uh, landing in Pittsburgh right as uh, the second plane was hitting the tower and had no idea what was going on. Uh, but as soon as I heard, since I was traveling by air, I wanted to tell my family, hey, I'm okay. Uh, it took me an hour and a half to get a call through with the cellular network. Uh, and, and really the cellular network wasn't down. It was just how many people were using it. So we need to think about having systems of redundancy, so that's a great point. Right, and listen, uh, moving forward, brought up a, uh, he brought up the idea of the, what did he call it, boogie bag. I think I've always heard it called a bug-out bag. Bug-out bag, correct. we always call it, but <clears throat> let's talk about that for a minute. Say you're, uh, say you're somewhere in a city or somewhere else, and uh, and you have decided that that's in your mind that's not going to be the best place to be. That you want to be somewhere else. Let's talk about uh, the things you should consider once you've made that decision. One of the things is that if you are going to uh, get to some location, such as uh, say you were in Houston, you were coming to my place here, you need to make sure that you have the ability, first of all, to to get here by having a vehicle, and that you have enough fuel in that vehicle to get where you're going without purchasing any. Because whenever those folks left Houston, it was like a huge herd of locusts. They cleaned out every store. They sucked out every gas station uh, coming out of the city. So that left nothing for anybody else uh, leaving to purchase. They couldn't buy gasoline. Yeah, you have to think with your vehicles and your uh, additional fuel, sto fuel storage in miles, not gallons. How far can your vehicle get with how much extra fuel? So uh, is extra an extra 20 gallons of fuel enough? I don't know. What are you driving, right? And then you better add about a 20% uh, fudge factor to that uh, because you're going to use a heck of a lot more miles per gallon when you're sitting in traffic than when you're cruising down the interstate, uh, you know, with the cruise control set at 65 miles an hour. And that's an easy thing to do that I think people overthink. You know, go out and get a couple five-gallon gas cans. 
And uh, then a few weeks, just like we talked about everything else, build this stuff over time so that you don't put yourself into debt. Because we haven't talked about debt tonight, but uh, my rule with debt is don't have it. it. It's terrible. So you do this thing slowly. But, you know, over time you can end up with a good 50 gallons of uh, reserve fuel easily stored uh, in a shed or something like that. And then people say, well, what about long-term stability of the fuel? Well, you can use stable. It's a great additive. I recommend it. But... All you do is when, you're, when your truck or your car gets kind of low on gasoline, take the first can in the row and go out and dump that into your car or your truck, throw it in the back, go to the gas station, fill up your vehicle, and fill up the can and put it in the back of the row. And right. if you do that, you're never going to have your fuel be so old uh, that you, you, you can't use it. Uh, so that will put a tremendous amount of reserve fuel there. Uh, and then if you have, you know, let's say a generator set, now the fuel is multi-purpose. It may be for running a generator set if you're bugging in, or it may be for running your vehicle if you're bugging out. So I believe in common fuel types. So people say, should I get a diesel generator or a gas generator? Well, do you have a diesel or a gas truck? Right. Right. And and once again, this all is going to rotate back to living your plan, living the lifestyle, living the plan. Having First of all, you've got to have a plan to, to, to survive, to succeed, You've got to have a plan, and then you have to start living that plan. You know, and no. I'll, tell you what, I'll tell you what, Scout. We've got people on our forum that are posting what they're doing in their lives that are in their 50s and have said, screw this working till I'm 70 stuff, and they're, they're, they're on two- to three-year plans of preparedness, and they're using preparedness as an early retirement plan. They're getting out of debt. They're paying off their property. They're paying off their vehicles. They're voluntarily reducing their income, spending time with their spouse while they can still do it, growing their own food, setting up self-sufficiency, setting up alternative sources of energy. And when they get to a point where they have enough to provide the things they need, then they look at work as something they do in addition to their life instead of to support their life. And we have people that are you know, working maybe 10 or 15 hours a week in their 50s uh, that are saying, that's enough, I've had enough of this. And they're using preparedness to get out of the system completely because this, you know, we watch these commercials, folks, and this is something I really want you to get today. And we see these two old people walking down this beach together with their pants rolled up to their knees, and they look perfectly healthy, but you can tell they're like that healthy 68. That never happens for most people. They spend their entire life in the gerbil wheel feeding the system. And by the time they reach that promised retirement, they're on, they're on Social Security. They're paying off what's left of their debt, which is usually massive. And half of them die or are sick and can't enjoy those years. And people are starting to figure out that if you live this preparedness lifestyle, that it's very reasonable to exit the system uh, as a full-time employee much earlier and be able to provide for yourself. Because let's face it, if you set up a lifestyle where you can provide for yourself if society collapses, then providing for yourself while society is still here, pretty easy to do. Right. Right. And and living, those are folks who have taken it to the extreme, which which I really like. But... <laughs> well, it's not even an extreme if you think about it. Because if you look at these people on the surface, if you went and visited them, you wouldn't look at them and go, these are survivalists you'd probably look at them and go, oh, these are people trying to prevent global warming or something like that. But you know what? They have solar, solar systems so that they have independence. They could care less about saving polar bears. And right, I think right. that there's a big overlap in that community, and you start talking about solar and solar hot water and solar energy and things like that. People are like, okay, well, this is about you know, saving the planet. 
and I guess to some level it, it, it does reduce pollution, uh, but not the pollution that we're told is the, the bad thing, which is us exhaling. Um, <laughs> but, but I don't see these people as extremists. What I see them as people that have come into touch with their humanity and have decided that working till 70 sucks. And and if, if, I don't know how you how old you are, Scout, but uh, I'm 38 years old. I figure by the time I'm you know old enough to get Social Security, I'm either going to be have to be 120 to draw it, or it'll be gone, or both. Right. right? Well, so, once again, that's uh, that falls under uh, depending on the government to pluck you from the rooftop, and that that works correct. just as just that's just as dependable in a financial situation as it is in a hurricane. If you're standing on that roof waiting for somebody to come and get you, uh, please tell me you have a plan B. So <laughs> that's what these guys are doing. When I, when I said take it to the extreme, I didn't mean uh, taking it to a, uh, a an ordinate level. What I meant was uh, you have folks that are really thinking about it, that are really Correct. considering having a plan and living the plan. Now, you may not want to do what these folks are doing to the extreme that they're uh, – once again, when I say extreme, I just mean to the – uh, in the to the degree that they're doing it, but you should at least have a plan. Uh, personally, I like to have plan A, plan B, plan C, D, E, F, and G, because uh, uh, anybody that's been in the military will tell you that plan A rarely uh, survives first contact. Correct. So yeah. If you Your have plan is as plan good a, as contact with the enemy. Correct. Yeah, you got plan A. Expect it to go down the drain. Right when something happens, so you make sure you got Plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, etc., because uh, you're going to need them. And the only way to have those is by living your plan, living the plan, having deciding. And it and it doesn't take uh, a great deal. It, it's it's not going to take a great change of lifestyle to get started. You just say uh, today, you say, you know what? Let me think about this. Let me write down a few things uh, about what I can do. Uh, in the event of just a three-day power outage uh, or something like that, and then right. you do that, and you go, okay, well, look, I'm good to go for that. So now, what am I? What do I do in the event of a uh, of a seven-day situation? Let me figure that out, and you figure that out, and you get it. And you just keep working your way up, little by little. You don't go out, you don't buy uh, or prepare a year's worth or two years worth of supplies at one time. Just uh, start with the uh, start with the little three-day thing. Get yourself geared up for that and figure out how to get past that. And uh, once you've done that, what is your appetite? Go for the next thing. We do that with the Appleseed program uh, every time we have an event. We show you how to, uh, how to start becoming the master of your rifle. Most people don't get it uh, on the very first uh, day uh, or even the second day. Uh, you, you, you don't master something uh, immediately, but what you do do is you get the fundamentals down, and you start devising a plan to master uh, whatever it is you're going after, and then you stick to that plan. You're absolutely right, and I think the other thing to understand is that everybody in the world is on what I call a sliding scale. You are incrementally advancing at something every day, whether you know it or not. The problem is that most people are doing it completely unconsciously. They're advancing deeper into debt. They're ad advancing deeper into dependence. They're advancing deeper into slavery uh, to a system that is designed to create slaves and to create mindless automatons that just respond uh, to whatever division of labor you happen to fall into. 
Or you can choose to be proactively on a sliding incremental scale where you're incrementally becoming a little bit more free, a little bit more liberty-oriented, a little bit more self-sufficient, a little bit more competent every day of your life. And it seems like a little tiny thing. But if you start at 30, by the time you're 40 years old, it's an amazing transformation in your life. And you think, well, 30 to 40, that sounds like forever if you're 28. But you know what? I think you've probably learned this in your life. You're going to turn 40. Whether you like it or not, those years are going to tick away. And it's up to you how you spend them. I had a commander in the military that used to say, men, one day when you die, they'll put a stone over your head, and there'll be a year you were born and a year that you die, and in the middle will be a dash. That dash is you. And unless you do something you know, memorable, unless you have an impact on the world, that dash is all you will ever be. And I think that if we live our lives in a positive way, we have an ability to make that dash matter. And if we live our lives the way most Americans do, people may grieve our loss when we're gone, but what is the impact we've truly left behind? Very, very little for most people. And that's a sad fact because we have more opportunity, even today, even with the encroachments on our liberties that we've had in this nation, we have more opportunity right here, right now, than 99% of the rest of the world. And so many people are squandering it, and it starts with personal responsibility. And personal responsibility can't get any more simple than personal responsibility for your own basic survival. Right, and one of the things that that I appreciate about our program, about the Alpsy program, is that folks, uh, I look at it like a launching pad uh, that uh, that sets people out. This is the the starting point. Uh, for a new journey for folks, people come to an Appleseed event, and they have uh, they've already decided before they come here that they're going to uh, attempt. They've, they've set a goal for themselves to, which is to improve their rifle marksmanship. They come here, and they do uh, almost 100 percent. They do improve their rifle marksmanship to whatever degree uh, that they do it. Now, what happens then for most of these folks uh, and uh, a great part of the folks that come are folks that don't have uh, previous marksmanship. And even if they do, <clears throat> once they've come here and they have accomplished their goal, uh, almost 90% of the time the response I hear then is, what next? I did this. I- I'm-, I'm working on this now. What next? What can I do next? And, uh, and you know why? Because accomplishment feels good. Because we live in a society where we've so rewarded mediocrity that people don't know what it is anymore to challenge themselves and to meet the challenge they've set out for themselves. And the minute you place them in touch with that, whether it's making a good tight group with a rifle or being able to produce their own food or being able to actually think independently and they actually meet a challenge, then all of a sudden that feels really really good because that's what we are that's who we are and you can hypnotize somebody all you want but sooner or later there's a snap of the fingers that awakens people to reality and even though reality is scary sometimes it beats the alternative which is you know a society-based hypnotism And, and so that person that comes to your shoot and especially the person that has no real firearms background that listens to the qualified instructor and just does what he's told and tries it and it works and then starts to work on it and develop that skill set 
realizes now I have a capability that I didn't have just yesterday. And I might not be where I want to be, but I know I can do this now. And it, 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 it goes right in line with what I've always said about if you want to defend the Second Amendment, if you want to defend your right to own a weapon, then take the anti-gunner to the rifle range and teach him to shoot. Because as soon as you teach that person how to shoot, and you put that power in their hands, and they understand that it can be wielded responsibly, it converts them quicker than any statistic that you'll ever give them. Because it's intrinsic to who we are to have a means to defend ourselves. That's why our founders were so enlightened and wrote it into the Constitution, kind of in draft too. And the other thing that your listeners really need to understand tonight, the reason the Second Amendment exists, is because the threat to our right to own a weapon is as old as the nation. The Bill of Rights was actually opposed by some of the founders who thought, if we put this thing into the Constitution, anything we don't include will be considered up for grabs, and maybe they'll take it away. And the more enlightened founders said they're going to try that anyway. So they took all the things that they thought were already threatened, and that's what made up your first ten amendments to your Constitution. Things like the right to free speech, things like the state's rights over the federal government and your right to defend yourself and to bear arms were threatened from the day this nation was an infant until now. That battle has been ongoing, and it's so important that active participation be the main way that we resist that. Disarming a nation where 5% of the people are, are skilled owners of firearms is easy. Disarming a nation where 60% are skilled and lawful firearm owners is impossible. Right. Right. I'm going to bring another caller on the line here. Uh, Sam? Okay, good. Uh, I'm bringing Sam Sam D. on the line. Like I I tell folks, I'm always always gritting my teeth when I open his mic because uh, I never know what he's building there. He is a busy bee. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you. Thank you, Scout. Thank you. Uh, Jack, uh, just been a very educational show for a lot of folks. I picked up some good stuff off of it, but I wonder if you could, uh, maybe expand a little bit on something that I think is important. You probably do too. We don't always think about it, and that's the benefit of a prepared mind. Absolutely, and you know, the thing is that anything that you own can be taken away, uh, my wife pointed out when, when people were talking about the people in Haiti, if they'd been a little bit more prepared mindset, that they would be able to, to handle the earthquake better. But if your house falls down on top of your food, your food's gone. And, and that, no matter what you do for redundancy, you can always lose everything that you have except your ability to think and adapt and overcome. And the way you think is so much more important than what you have. And, and I really got this concept from talking to oncologists, which it, it, for folks that don't maybe know what an oncologist is, that's a doctor that takes care of cancer patients, which to me seems like a tremendously, uh, uh, what would you call it, uh, a depressing profession because it, it, you're dealing with people that, you know, 25 to 50% of them die. But what I've heard from oncologists is the patient that's kind of um, a pain in the ass, so to speak, is the one that survives when they're not supposed to. The patient that's like, why are you doing this? Is there an alternative? Is there anything else that we can do? Uh, are there alternative treatments? Is this surgery really necessary? Even when they follow the exact same protocol of the patient that's compliant, the one that's a pain in the rear tends to survive where the compliant patient doesn't simply because what they do matters and they know that. And that's the thing that separates survivors in all situations. They know that their actions are important, and that starts with the right mindset. Right. 
Yeah, Sam, did you hear what he uh, what he mentioned in his uh, advice on the right mindset? The ability to uh, adapt, overcome, and persevere, which is sounds uh, like a yeah, sounds like a rifleman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is part of the uh, the motto of the rifleman. A rifle over a rifleman overcomes, a rifleman adapts, and a rifleman most of all perseveres. You don't give up. There's no way for you to uh, to change the 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 tide of the battle. There's no way for you to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat if you give up. It will never happen. Hey, Scout. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Uh, one thing I'd, I would like to tie back to is uh, nearly every show you mentioned that um, the, part of the reason we do marksmanship training is because it's one of the few things that we have that's a direct tie to our ancestors, to those who did so much and the people we remember and the stories we tell. Right. Uh, the reality is preparedness, gardening, hunting, basic skills, basic stuff, they're all ties. These are exactly. all things that are reaching back. It's not you, as much as we do the rifles. Gardening itself is a is a tie back. Being able to darn your own clothes. All that of all, all that all falls under uh, on on self dependent, which and is what they, and the skills themselves are actually a tie back to that past. Right. You know exactly. you're correct, and it's even more than that. One of the big things that brought people to this nation uh, shortly after its founding and before it was even considered a nation was that you could come here and own a piece of land. And they didn't want that land so that they could have a great big green gar uh, yard with a, a bunch of Bermuda grass. They wanted it because it could become a producer. And unlike being a serf in Europe, what you produced was yours. And we've so lost touch with that. And those skills all go together because the guy that was going out hunting to put food on the table, you can bet he was growing some corn, and he was probably growing a bit of tobacco to sell in town as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And now we haven't really talked much about that, uh, about barter. Uh, I mentioned it like with the aspirin and stuff, but that's, that should also be something that, uh, that you're putting in your bag of tricks. You know, if you're thinking about gardening and stuff, you, you you grow enough food for you, but then if you want to get some of that ammunition and somebody has some, uh, what? How are you going to? Are you going to get it from them? What are you going to use to purchase it? And uh, correct. And I, I think we should all have a little bit of silver and gold in our uh, our lives as well. Some real money. I mean, that's a that's a whole show in of itself. But I'll just leave it at that today. That. You know, when you go to barter with somebody, you don't always have what they want or they don't always have exactly what you want at the time. So the money is simply to replace that and have a common means of exchange so that I know that if, if I give you some food today, if you give me some silver, that when I do find someone that has what I need, if, you know, I can use that as a means of exchange. So please make sure you include that too, folks, because our dollar is being devalued faster than, God, I don't even know anything else moving that fast today. Yeah, so have something... Uh, have something something physical, like you said. Uh, uh, you know, when I was in the military and uh, working on some stuff, that uh, they told us one of the best things we could do is to uh, to buy either silver or gold bracelets, silver or gold necklaces, uh, because you could always uh, you could always pop a link after that or cut off part of the chain, and uh, you could use that as currency. But like Jack said, this is. Uh, this is a huge subject that uh, 
that I'm hoping that he will come come back and talk about on another show. I'll be happy to. Uh, while we got we've got about 90 seconds, the English lady says we have 90 seconds. Okay. Uh, area code 712, you're on the air. And area code eight one two two eight seven, you're on the air. So oh, that's still me. Okay. Well, I just want to make sure that uh, I gave everybody a chance who was in the queue, who was queued up here, uh, a chance to come on the air. Uh, all right, we got about sixty seconds left. The uh, the English lady is telling me that. Jack, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on. Uh, what a great wealth of information. Now, you said that you would be willing to come back again. I'd be happy to come back again, and folks can check my site out at www.thesurvivalpodcast.com until I do. But I'll come back anytime you want me to. I love what you guys are doing, and I'm happy to help in any way that I can. Right, and I put the uh, the links to your site, to the forum, uh, and to the shows and stuff. Now you guys can go to his uh, you can go to his website and sign up for the. Uh, the reminders and the links to the podcast. So what will happen is whenever he puts out a new podcast, he'll send you an email with that specific podcast already ready to go and hot linked up. So all you got to do is click on it, and then you can down download it uh, to your iPod and take it with you and listen to it during the day. Let's do it at work, in your car, etc. Be listening to that instead of uh, whatever other stuff comes out over the radio and be putting your plan together so that you can start living your plan. And just real quick, there's about 384 episodes as of today. So if you didn't hear something talked about today with preparedness that you'd like to hear about, I promise you there's some episodes there. Use the search uh, search from the site. Right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. All you guys that were in the uh, the online chat, thank you so much. Uh, thanks to Karen, uh, all of the uh, instructors. Uh, thanks to the folks, uh, all you guys that have called in. Thank you very much. And Jack. Uh, I'll talk to you about coming on to the uh, the show again, and uh, and thank you for coming on this time. Everyone, make sure that you are uh, deciding to, first of all, get your plan, and then you'll start living it. And we'll see you next Tuesday night at the same time, Tuesday at uh, 7 o'clock Central. Thanks, everybody, and good night. <laughs>